You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. Let's take our Bibles now and go over to Isaiah chapter number 54. Isaiah chapter number 54 this evening. As I was studying, uh, something jumped out at me, uh, and I thought, oh, that's a a, a really good thought. And so I uh, put it out there on Facebook to try to maybe generate a little interest uh, to come and, or at least to, to tune in or something to hear uh, the, the the Bible study here in Isaiah chapter number fifty four, and you know we just finished one of the, the the best chapters of the Bible. Not because it is the most storied chapter. It is not because it has the most exciting plot line. It's not because it is even a a pleasant chapter. Because really, the words in the chapter itself, Isaiah fifty three, is not all that pleasant, but. It is to us as Christians, it is to us to the redeemed because, well, we look at this chapter and we see a Savior. We look at the chapter and we see a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. We see a man who is a sacrifice, who is led to the slaughter like a lamb. And while that sounds dark and it sounds sad on one hand, to us it means life. It was our only hope. And so we finished here, chapter 53, about the man of sorrows who was a lamb to the slaughter, who was an offering for sin. And then we get to chapter number 54. And somebody said about chapter 54, they said, try and suck all the sweetness that you can out of this chapter while we read it, because there's some good stuff in here. Uh, Make sure you get every last bit of sweetness, like a old piece of bubble gum. You chew it. 20 more times because every time you get just the tiniest little bit of sweetness out of it until it's completely all gone. Chapter 54 is a sweet chapter. As we're going through chapter 54, I want you to remember again who is speaking here, the prophet Isaiah by inspiration from God, who he is speaking to. He is speaking to Israel, Israel who had been taken captive from Jerusalem by the Babylonians and spread all across the world at that particular time. The Babylonians had been conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And then during Cyrus, Isaiah prophesied that 200 years later, uh, a man would rise up, a king of the Medes and Persians named Cyrus, who would release them and allow them to return back to Jerusalem and not just allow them to return, but to return with his blessing. And on top of that, um, that the, uh, the the Medes and the Persians would actually help fund their rebuilding of the temple and rebuilding of the walls. And so Isaiah is prophesying that this is going to happen one day. Remember, he's talking about a future time of discipline, a future time of God putting his hand of judgment upon Israel. But then in chapter 40 here in Isaiah, it turns the corner from prophecies of judgment to prophecies of hope. And then we begin to see God's hand of help and blessing upon Israel following their absence, following their captivity. And so chapter 54 
is are words that are directed to the people of Israel and they're very, very sweet words. And there's much that we as the church can draw from these because while we are not his peculiar people, Israel, we are his bride, the church. We are his people in that sense, his chosen, not because he looked at the list of names and picked out our names off of the list, but he chose to offer the way of salvation to us after having given us a free will, then we get the opportunity to decide whether or not we will reject or believe him. And so we can take some from this passage and we can also take and draw upon the sweetness of these promises. So I want you to look at Isaiah 54 and look at verse number one. We'll read the first three verses. It says this, Sing, O barren, that thou didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. In ancient times, it was considered a sign of great blessing to have many children and for your household to increase in size. And in these first three verses, we see a dichotomy. We see on one hand, those that are barren, those that did not bring any children. And then on the other hand, we see the symbolism of blessing of those who have the children. And not and you also see them you know, extending the, the, the size of the tent and making it bigger and making the, well, as it says there, Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. In other words, adding on to the house and making it bigger. Why? Well, because your sons, they, they go and they take themselves wives, or they get married anyways, and then they come back and they basically add on to your house. Not the way we do it these days most of the time, is it? But they come back after they get married and they add on to mom and dad's house and they live there. And then you have another son goes and gets married and he adds on to mom and dad's house and lives there. And your habitation increases and this is a sign in ancient times of blessing. Well, what happens if you were not able to have any children in ancient times? Well, that was considered a sign of a curse upon you, as if God was withholding something from you. But we know that that was not always the case. We know that just because someone did not have children in ancient times, nor in modern day times, did that mean uh, that there was a curse upon that person or that they had done something wrong. We know that's not true. In ancient times, that's how they often looked at it. Now again, what does this mean? Well, he's speaking to a dejected group of people that are living off in a land that was not their own, and they felt barren. They felt rejected by God, that he had just put them off in some place. And so he looks at them who felt like they were barren, who felt like God has this, this hand of judgment upon them, keeping them you know, from, from being, being blessed. You ever been in that position where you just felt like God's hand was on you and preventing you from being blessed? He says to them, sing, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Why? They might think to themselves, yeah, well, we don't have a land and we don't have a home and we've been growing up as slaves and often these foreign lands. He says, yes, but I'm going to let you go back home. And you know what is going to end up happening when you get back home? 
When you get back to Jerusalem, you're going to find that the walls are not big enough. You're going to find that the homes are not enough. And you're going to have to expand and build more places. This is what he's talking about. Blessing them upon their return. He said, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. When they come back to Jerusalem and to the surrounding areas, they see desolate cities. They see cities that are no longer inhabited, and the the sand has begun to reclaim those houses. It's been broken, and it's been rummaged through, and the Gentiles have begun to live in some of those places when Israel returns. And he says, no, you're going to be breaking out left and right, and you're going to be bursting at the seams, and your seed is going to inherit this. Babylonian exile and captivity meant more than just oppression for Israel. To them, it also meant shame disgrace, humiliation. And so here God is promising a release, not only from exile, but also from the shame, disgrace, and humiliation of being a conquered and a captured people. So this curse and shame of barrenness was going to be so completely broken that Israel was going to be the exact opposite of that. They were going to be fruitful. In the places where the sand had come over the fields, their fields were going to once again become, you know, be blooming. And children are going to once again be running in the streets. And markets were once again going to have plenty of fruits and vegetables and meat on their shelves. Look at verse number 4. We're in Isaiah 54, verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the approach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. We go back where he said, and thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. He says, Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't be confused. You're not going to be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and thou shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Just like there was a a disgrace on, on barrenness in the ancient world, often there was also this shame and disgrace upon being the widow in the ancient world as well. And so he compares the humiliation and reproach of the two. Shame, disgrace, humiliation, those all represent three synonymous Hebrew verbs that all share the same fundamental idea of this, disappointed hopes. When we enter into marriage, we have certain, a certain level of hopes, hopes for that relationship, hopes for the children or family. When we enter into any anything like that, we have a certain level of expectation or hope. And I'll tell you what, oftentimes, our hopes get disappointed, don't they? We, we set our expectations way up here and somebody doesn't meet our expectations. Well, hey, join the crowd. <laughs> this happens to us as humans a lot. Disappointed hopes. Israel had gone through such a golden period there. And then they went through so many wicked kings and they went through so much rebellion against God and God gave them opportunity after opportunity to get things right. And it got to a point where God said, 
I'm done giving you opportunities to get things right. Now it is time for discipline. Now it is time for discipline. Not because I hate you. Not because I want you to suffer pain. I'm bringing the discipline now, and it, and it is going to be painful in a sense, in a very real sense, but for what reason? So that I can turn you back again unto me. So that our hearts can once again be knit together on the other side of this. And so there was the judgment, and now comes the hope. Where God removes the shame. He removes the humiliation of what they've been talking about here. I like where he says, for thy maker is thine husband. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Though Israel might have been regarded as forsaken, like a widow is forsaken, the Lord promises to stand in the place of her husband. And throughout the centuries, many many hurting women have taken this promise to themselves. And I'm not talking about becoming a nun and you know, marrying the church or marrying the Lord in that sense. That's not biblical, but taking you know, those who are no longer able to have that husband, relying upon the Lord. They have found this beautiful comfort there in the promise that he would be a husband to them when their own husband no longer can be or will be. And really the principle is true even for those who do have husbands. You know, God can meet and, and supply our emotional needs, your emotional needs, and can rescue you from disgrace and shame, even when others forsake us, he can, he can do what even your husband cannot do. And so I'd encourage all of us, really, in that aspect, to be leaning upon the Lord. Some of us, we lean unto him as a father. Some of us, we lean unto him as a brother. Some lean unto him as a husband. But we all still need to lean unto him. Rest upon him, even if all others forsake us, because we know he won't forsake us. And then he gives his name here several times. He says, the Lord of hosts is his name. This is the Lord Jehovah. And then it says, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Wait, are we talking about two people here? Because there's the Lord Jehovah, that's God the Father. And then there's the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Well, that's the Messiah. And then there's the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Are we talking about two different people here? No. We're talking about one person. One person in three people. <laughs> you say, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, welcome to the Trinity. It's sometimes very difficult to grasp, but Jesus Christ, the Son, is God. He is the Redeemer the Holy One of Israel, God the Father, Jehovah. He is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Creator. The Holy Spirit is God. He says, the God of the whole earth shall He be called. This is, ought to be a comfort and a strength then to His people of Israel and to us as well. Who is this person which is declaring their undying, everlasting love to us? You know, does it make, did it make you feel good when your spouse, you know, declared that they would love you forever? And then they, you know, put that ring on your finger. Uh, did it bring that warm feeling when they said it again later or whispered it in your ear? If they could handle you whispering in their ear. Not everybody likes that sort of thing, I guess. But 
Um, did they did they bring you that warm feeling when they said, I love you and I will always love you. I love you forever. You know, I hope that my kids, you know, appreciate hearing that and will always remember that one day. But tell you what, to have the everlasting, undying, promised love of a human being is comforting. But to have the undying, everlasting, promised love of a God the creator, the God of the whole world. That ought to be the ultimate comfort. So whatever uncertainty you're facing this evening, understand you have the promised, certain, undying, everlasting love of the God of the whole earth right now. If you're saved, you have his promised everlasting love to you. The Lord of hosts is his name, the God of the whole earth. We go on to verse number seven. It says, for a small moment have I forsaken thee. Talking about the Babylonian captivity. For a, for a small moment have I forsaken thee. But with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness Will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. He said, for just a short time I have forsaken you. And to some of them, it, it was their whole lifetime. Some of them, they, they spent their entire life, birth to death, in captivity. But he looks at Israel and he says, you, 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 you brought yourselves to this judgment by your own disobedience. And it was, I had to do this. I had to discipline you during this time. And it was just for a small, a small portion of time that I forsook thee. By the way, it was only for a short period of time. God did not permanently forsake Israel, forsake his chosen and called out and peculiar people. It was for a short time. Now, we know that this speaks temporarily or short-term fulfillment of when Israel is released to go back to Jerusalem during Cyrus's reign. But we also know that it speaks to long-term fulfillment as well. Because you and I know very well that right now, Israel by and large, or Judaism by and large, still rejects Jesus Christ the Messiah. So they're still living in rebellion even to this very day. But there will be a, a time like when we were studying in the book of Revelation, a time where God raptures the church away and then turns his attention back to his people Israel one time, at that time, and they turn their hearts back to him as well at that time. He said, so for just a small moment, I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Think about the great tender mercies. Think about the great tender mercies of mom or dad who give you stuff that you do not deserve, who show you love that you did not earn or deserve. You probably deserved a whack up the side of the head, but she still smiled at you and she still hugged you and see, she still kissed you on the cheek. And no matter what you did or said that day, she still gave you a hug and kiss. Good night. The sweet, tender mercies of mom as she gathers you up into her arms, no matter how terrible you have been for the last hour, or how frustrated you've made her, or how many times you've lied to her, she still gathers you up into her arms because you're her little children, and she shows you those great mercies as she gathers you in. Here God uses this picture. He says, in a little wrath, 
I hid my face from thee for a moment. How, where, how did God hide his face? He hid it behind wrath, his wrath. You stop and think about that for a moment. God had to bring wrath down upon his children. You know, every parent knows there's a time where you have to bring discipline down upon your kids. Whether you want to or not, you got to do it. And they may not always interpret that discipline as love. You know, one of the kids has just recently started getting mad when they get in trouble. Rather than, you know, immediate hugs afterwards, now it's stiffness. I don't want to hug you because I'm mad at you because I got in trouble. And uh, because they're not understanding that the discipline is not because we're angry and it's not because we hate them or want to hurt them. It is because we love them and cannot let them continue to disobey. Cannot let them continue to choose to do whatever they want to do because it's going to end up hurting them far worse one day if they're left to their own choices, then if we intervene now early on in life. And so he says, I had to hide my face from you behind my wrath for a time. That means that there was a time when Israel looked up at the heavens and they did not see the sweet, loving face of their father, but instead they saw the swift hand of the judge, the disciplinarian who had to show wrath for a moment, he says. But, it says next, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. And this is to be ultimately his attitude towards Israel forever, for eternity. And that's what he says. Everlasting kindness. There are those, and I've talked about this many times, who teach that God has has. Put away Israel forever and has replaced Israel completely with the church. And that he will no longer turn back to them at all, that he has rejected them. He has turned them over to a reprobate mind, never again for them to come back to God. But he says here, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy. Redeemer. Notice how he identifies himself as Israel's Redeemer. And he says that he will have everlasting. Now, I've never had an everlasting gobstopper. Even if I ate one of those pieces of candy that called themselves an everlasting gobstopper, do you know what eventually happened to them? They went away. Now, if you were able to actually go into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and get an everlasting gobstopper, it was supposed to never, ever, ever, ever wear away. And it was supposed to just continue going infinitely uh, into eternity. This is his kindness. His kindness doesn't eventually wear away. We can learn a lot from that, can't we, as a Christian? We can learn a lot from that. How easy it is for us to let our kindness wear away. To wear away when somebody begins to rub us the wrong way. To wear away when somebody doesn't respond to us the way we hoped they would. To wear away when somebody begins to speak or say unkind things. To wear away when somebody shows indifference. To wear away when you fill in the blank. It's easy for us as humans to allow our kindness and favor towards somebody else to wear away when our hope in them is disappointed. 
But God says, I turned my face from you, or I hid my face from you in wrath for a while, for just a moment. For just a moment, I forsook you, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on me. And I like this because I need mercy. I need the mercy of God. I crave the mercy of God because I know I am at fault far more often than I would like to admit. And I need the mercy of God. And he has, he has declared his everlasting kindness to his children of Israel. And I know that that same everlasting kindness will also roll over onto me as one of his children too. Everlasting kindness and mercy. Because he is also my redeemer. Not just Israel's redeemer, but my redeemer. You see, God never really forsook Israel. Now they felt like they were forsaken, and he seems to recognize that. And he allowed them to feel forsaken for a time. But he never really forsook them. Notice that when he says, but with great mercies will I gather thee. This is in the present tense. With great mercies, I, with great mercies, present tense, I will gather thee, future tense. These are real. These are not stories from the past. This is a living God who exists today, who still reaches out to you to gather you in with mercies. Now look at verse number nine. We'll see here in the rest of this passage, comfort and assurance to a restored Israel. Look at verse number nine. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. And I want you to notice the comparison in verse number nine, because it's important. It's one of the things that I noticed today I was, uh, as I was reading this and decided uh, to make a little video to just kind of uh, generate some interest in the Bible study here. Notice the comparison. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. Okay, the waters of Noah. So we have the great flood. We have Noah in the ark. We have uh, God's promise after Noah got off the ark. Uh, signified by a rainbow that he would never, ever, ever again destroy the world by water, by flood. Okay, so a promise. This is what he's talking about. What I just said to you reminds me of the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed, but... My kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. We think about the significance of this verse. God made a promise when Noah got off of the ark. Children have learned the story. They walk themselves down off of that ark, down onto Mount Ararat. And a big rainbow goes across the sky for the first time. They've never seen this before. There's many speculations as to why that was. Probably because it had never rained before, but I digress. They see this big rainbow up in the sky, and God tells Noah, I'm giving you this as a sign, and every time you see this sign up in the sky, I want you to remember that I make a promise to you that I will never again destroy the entire earth by flood. Not that there would never be floods again, but I will never again destroy all of mankind in this way. Has God gone back on his promise? Anybody? 
No, God has not gone back on his promise. Will God go back on his promise? According to scripture, no. I have every reason to believe that God will keep his promises. And so he says, just like I promised that I would never destroy the earth by flood ever again, so I also make a promise that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. And when he's talking about this, he's not saying that I, I, mean, I promise that I'll never be upset with you because of your sin. <laughs> That's not what he means. He means that I am never going to destroy you because of your sin, that I'm never going to completely get rid of you and reject you completely here. Because look what he says. The mountains will depart. The hills will be removed. I mean, wow, what does it take to make a mountain be removed? I can think of, you know, Krakatoa. I can think of uh, Mount St. Helens. You know, when it blew up with that volcano and that entire mountain pretty much blows up into the air and turns to dust and falls down all around it in the cities around as ash. Well, it takes quite a lot of power to remove a mountain. We can also think of the power of water. Sometimes it takes, you know, hundreds and thousands of years for water to make great uh, damage to a particular area of land. And sometimes a flood can do it in real short order. What does it take to move mountains and hills? I almost think that he's pointing back to the great flood again here. When the great flood occurred, there was a drastic change that was made on the earth around us. Many believe that because of the, the great flood, that it caused our continents to shift farther apart than they were once before. That it caused uh, the great mountain chains like the Appalachians and the Blue Ridge and the Rockies and many others across the earth. That it caused many, uh, much upheaval in the land itself. He says it took great amounts of water and great power to move mountains and hills, but he says but my kindness shall not depart from me. He says, even a mountain can be moved, but not my kindness to thee. And again, who is he speaking to? And this is why I pointed it out carefully at the beginning. Israel. To the Israel who had been scattered in captivity, who God was telling he was going to gather them back together again and bless them. He says to them. Did God renege on his promise? to preserve the earth from flood only for the Old Testament period? No, his promise endured for eternity. And so his promise for Israel does as well. He compares the two. I don't know how you can look at this passage and still think that God has completely replaced Israel with the church. He says, even the mountains and hills can be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. And then he uses the term covenant. Neither shall a covenant of my peace be removed. This covenant is that, that handshaking bond, the promise, the contract that God made with Israel. And so will God break his word? Will God break his covenant with them? And he says, no. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. He says it in no uncertain terms. I will not ever remove my kindness from you or my mercy. I will not ever break my covenant with you, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. And again, remember, why do you require mercy? Because you have sinned. So if God was more than willing to show mercy on Israel back here, despite their lack of worship for him and their rebellion to him, why would God not be willing to show his mercy on them tomorrow or in 10 years? 
or whenever the rapture occurs. Why would God not be willing to show his mercy upon them then? I think verses 7 through 10 are very important when combating this idea of replacement theology. We'll move on here. Verse number 11. It says, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established, thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, um, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, and let's pause here and, and stop and think about the significance of this passage as well. I'm just going to back up because I, I want to save the, this last portion for later. Let's back up again to verse number 11. He's speaking to the afflicted. O thou afflicted, tossed with a tempest and not com comforted. You know, God cares about the afflicted ones. Just because you're living in a time of affliction of any kind, that does not mean that God has rejected you. It does not mean that God has just removed himself from you. Sometimes we live in affliction of our own doing. Sometimes we live in affliction that is a trial that is testing us, that is strengthening us, so that on the other end of that affliction, we'll be more or better used by the Lord. But God cares about the afflicted. He cares about the one that is tossed with the tempest, the one who doesn't feel comforted. It's easy for them to believe that God doesn't care, but he does. He gives promises here to assure strength. He says, I'll lay thy stones with fair colors. And he talks about these different stones. And these stones would be the same as sapphires and rubies and crystal. In other words, God is going to lavish riches upon the hurting and upon the, flick, uh, the afflicted. Is this a promise of health and wealth? Is that what this is? Oh, Israel, now it's going to be health and wealth for the rest of your life. No, that's not it at all. You know, riches aren't found in our bank accounts or our garages or our safes. Riches can be found in some much more serious places than that. You know, riches are found sleeping in the little beds that you have in your rooms or your children's rooms or their houses or your grandkids' rooms. Riches are found in the church with your brothers and sisters in Christ, in the, the friends and family that God has given to you here in this building or us. Riches can be found, real riches can be found in a whole lot of other places than where we typically look for them. He says that I am going to reach out to the afflicted and I'm going to bless them. But not only them, their children, he says, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Notice what it is that brings peace to thy children. What is it that brings peace to the children? It is when they are being taught of the Lord. Well, who's going to teach these kids of the Lord? Well, that's mom and dad's job. 
when mom and dad get things right between them and God, and then they begin to teach their children the things of the Lord, notice, great shall be the peace of thy children. You know, a, a home with young children may not be the quietest or most peaceful home, but training them in a, a biblical and godly way brings about a peaceful life for them, unless they choose to reject it. But if they stick to the truths of the Bible, and when mommy and daddy taught them as they grew up, it will bring peace to their lives. So many times I say these words, I cannot let you just do what you want. If I let you do whatever you want, right now it may not seem like a big deal, but one day you doing whatever you want is going to hurt other people and it's going to destroy your life. I want you to have a peaceful life. And a peaceful life comes through obedience to God, through obedience to his word, through obedience to our authorities. So he says, and thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. If we want our children to be in peace, it comes now through teaching them about the Lord. He says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. He says, you shall not fear. He says, whosoever shall gather against thee shall fall for thy sake. And I mentioned this somewhat recently. You think about every group that has come up against Israel in history, and every single last one of them has failed. Some of them seem to have had success for a time, but every single empire and every single nation that has come up against Israel to destroy them since Babylon, and even Babylon themselves were destroyed and became no longer an empire. Even the Medes and the Persians themselves were destroyed and no longer became an empire. And the Romans, the Roman Empire fell apart. And every single nation who lifted up his hand against Israel has been destroyed. How amazing is that? Think about that as we read these following verses. We go on and it says, Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, and by the way, pause. Whosoever shall gather against thee shall fall for thy sake. Let that never be us, please, Lord. Let that never be the United States that gathers itself against Israel, because if that's the case, it is a surety that we will fall. Anybody who gathers themselves against Israel will fall. It is amazing to me that such a tiny little piece of land, such a tiny little nation, yet is so powerful on the world stage when it comes to military might and capability. And that all of these big nations around them, which are big, you know, land size compared to them, I should say, not, not um, financially big, I guess, but all of these nations surrounding them who all hate them and all want them to destroy can't touch them. It is amazing. We go on and he says, um, Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth in the coals and the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. He says, I created the smith, the blacksmith. This is the guy who goes into the fire and he, he creates weapons of war. Now he creates other things than, as well, but 
This is what the passage is talking about, the weapons of war. He says, I created the people who created the weapons of war and created the waster to destroy. He says, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And you know, that went beyond swords and that went beyond bows and arrows. It went beyond trebuchets and siege engines. That went beyond even rifles. That went in beyond missiles. That went beyond bombs. He says, there is no weapon. Whether it be siege warfare, whether it be weaponry to fall from airplanes, there is no weapon that is formed against thee that shall prosper. If you want a weapon to fail, then fire it at Israel. Makes me think of all the missiles that I... that um, uh, Anyways, makes me think of all the missiles that they have fired. Uh, at Israel that have fallen down back in their own country, hurting their own people. You want your weapon to be useless? Fired at Israel. It says, in every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. And really, the tongue is far more dangerous than the sword. The tongue is far more dangerous than a bomb, where the tongue can, can hurt. The tongue can do great, serious damage, far more than any weapon can actually do. But he says, the tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Makes me think of many in the past who have lifted up their voices against Israel, no longer are able to do so. And yet Israel persists. It makes me think of those even to this day in the Democratic Party, among others, who lift up their voices against Israel, they won't continue. They may for a time, but eventually they will be condemned as well. He says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now, back in chapters 51, 2, and 3, we see the servant of the Lord referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I mentioned then that servant of the Lord is used to refer to a couple different people throughout the book, to Israel, to Isaiah, um, to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, among others. Here, the servants of the Lord is talking about Israel. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. What is the heritage of Israel? And again, Isaiah is speaking to an Israel who has been destroyed and scattered by uh, Babylon and is going to return. And he says, your heritage is this, that I'm never going to forsake you, that I'm always going to be willing to show you everlasting kindness and mercy, that I will gather you and I will bless you and I will bring peace when, when, when the Lord is being taught. And there is no weapon that man can wield against you that will prosper. There is no tongue that man can wield against you that will prosper. And this is your heritage, servants of the Lord. When a person understands, well, by, by the way, I, I want to look again at that last, um, last verse. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Their righteousness is from what? Is it from their offering of sacrifices? Is their righteousness from their religion? 
well, I go to church. So that makes me righteous. So I dress up right. I, you know, I, I do this. I do that. I do, do, do. And that makes me righteous. Uh, we're looking at it the wrong way. Sometimes we feel like we have to do all the work to protect our own religiosity, to protect our own righteousness. Sometimes we feel like when others are casting dispersions or accusations against us wrongly, we feel like we have to defend our own righteousness. But understand this, it was never our righteousness to begin with. I can't defend that. When we understand that our righteousness comes from the Lord, then it is that much easier for us to let the Lord defend that righteousness because it's His after all. And so any goodness that you may possess, you don't need to defend it. Because it's not your goodness. Any righteousness that you may have, that you may have built yourself upon, that you might be proud of, it's not your righteousness at all. So you do not need to defend it. Let the Lord protect that righteousness. This also is the heritage that Israel has. God's righteousness. And what is this righteousness? Is it righteousness of obeying and keeping the law? Oh no, we just saw in the previous chapter the final sacrifice that was to come for the sins of mankind. This is the righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's his righteousness. So we'll let him do the defending of that righteousness as well. Chapter 54, as I said at the very beginning, is a passage, a chapter about restoration. It is a sweet chapter. It is, I tell you, it's, a, it's far different than the, all the first you know, 40 chapters or first 39 chapters of the book. Uh, which is all about judgment. And it was chapter after chapter about woe unto you and woe unto you and woe unto you. And, and then we get to chapter 54. And the, 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 the discipline has already happened. And now it is, I will bless you and I will take care of you and I will show mercy to you and I will show everlasting kindness to you. I will gather you under myself. I will multiply you. I will bless you. And then I'll protect you so that nobody can come in and destroy you. I will frustrate every weapon and word that is used against you. And I will give you a heritage and I will give you my righteousness. And my righteousness is not through keeping the law, but through placing your faith in the servant of God from chapter 53, the lamb as it was slain from Revelation chapter 5, placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So chapter 54 was a good one. We'll come back next Wednesday evening and get into chapter 55 as he talks here about an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. I think, again, when we go through those words, how can you see an everlasting covenant and think that God is going to reject and turn away Israel for an eternity? Well, we'll come back to that next Wednesday evening. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.